Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Khalil Bendib is away. This week, we bring you the second part of an in-depth conversation about the presidential election and the ruling Justice and Development Party, or AKP, in Turkey, with Sinan Berdal, a visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. The whole Erdogan's clientelism, especially after 2008, but even before that, if you go back to the IMF-sanctioned reforms, quote-unquote, of the late 1990s, early 2000s, basically the reconfiguration of the financial system in Turkey, which was beneficial in a sense to the urban poor because it made credit available for the first time in history to these classes. In the second part of the conversation, we speak about the base of support for President Erdogan and his ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, We also discuss the impact of government's economic policies, the ongoing state of emergency, as well as Turkey's military intervention in Syria on the country's political landscape and the June 24th election. Later in the program, we speak with award-winning documentary filmmaker Gianfranco Rossi about his Oscar-nominated documentary film Fire at Sea which sheds light on the subject of African migration to Europe by training his camera on Lampedusa, a picturesque island located halfway between Libya and Sicily, where more than 100,000 Africans first set foot on European soil every year. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. On June 24th, for the first time in their country's history, voters in Turkey headed to the polls to elect both parliament and president on the same day. The elections took place under state of emergency, and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won re-election with an outright majority in the first round on 52% of the votes. Mr. Erdogan will assume new powers approved in a 2017 referendum, the powers that have transformed what was a ceremonial role into a key executive role in Turkey. In the parliamentary elections, in spite of losing seats, Mr. Erdogan's ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, with its nationalist allies, retained the overall majority in parliament after an unexpectedly strong showing by the nationalists. To understand the June 24th elections in Turkey, we turned to Sinan Berdal. He is a visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. This week, in the second part of the interview, he speaks with Shahram Aramir about the base of support for President Erdogan and his ruling justice and Development Party, AKP. He also details the impact of government's economic policies, the ongoing state of emergency, as well as Turkey's military intervention in Syria on the country's political landscape and the June 24th election. It's clear that Mr. Erdogan's Justice and Development Party has been a party of new liberal capitalism, and they are kind of proud of that, if you like. Can you talk about some of these economic policies that the ruling party has implemented since its ascendancy to power in 2003. And again, how does that manifest itself among the population? Obviously, the working class, the urban poor, or even certain layers of the middle class. First of all, again, just as an addendum to the last question, first of all, I think that the Republican People's Party is also pro-neoliberalism. That is the problem. I mean, they're not really, as I said, they're not really coming with an alternative to neoliberalism. They might criticize, for example, um, uh, use of subcontractors or the flexibilization of the labor market here and there. 
But even in their own municipalities, municipalities run by uh, the Republicans People Party, by the Social Democrats, we know that they've been employing subcontractors. They had actually strikes happening with their own workers in these municipalities. So I don't see a consistent opposition to neoliberalism uh, within the ranks of Social Democrats. Why is this important? Well, first of all, we need to understand the social base of Erdoganism, the social base of, of the Justice and Development Party. Now, this again goes back to urbanization. Urbanization basically starts in uh, the mid 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we have, of course, you know, in terms of political geography, we have uh, the rise of shanty towns or the so called Gece Kondus in Turkey, which corresponds, again, if you look at, you know, comparatively with the rest of the third world, you know, the barrios or the favelas and stuff like that. And so during the 60s, 70s and up to the military crew, these neighborhoods were mostly dominated by the left. By the left, I mean the communists, the socialists. So the socialists were the ones who were helping the uh, immigrants from rural areas to settle down in uh, the big cities. So the coup and the counterinsurgency before and after the coup wiped out the left from these neighborhoods. And of course, the only networks left in these neighborhoods were the Islamist networks, which were also supported by uh, the state as part of their counterinsurgency strategy. So, but even in the late 80s, as far as, you know, 1987, 88, 89, up till 1994, actually, the Islamists didn't really score any points in municipal elections, right? So in big cities, for example, people still voted for social democrats predominantly. So what happened is, again, going back to this question about social democrats, maybe they really didn't come up with a new urban policy. They didn't really understand what was happening with urbanization. And what happened here is that the once shantytown dwellers, they became homeowners, property owners. The first generation shantytown owners became second generation property owners in the 80s and the 90s. And to me, they constitute, in my view, the backbone of this Islamist movement, you know, of the AKP. Pretty much like all Islamist movements in the region, also Turkish Islamism, is based on a medium-sized property owners. Or they were small capitalists from Anatolia. They actually had wage laborers working for them, right? Well, that happened with the switch of Turkey's developmental strategy from import substitution to export orientation. After the coup. After the coup, exactly. Because the neoliberal, neoliberal accumulation strategy basically was based upon integrating these small shop owners, small uh, workshop owners with international capital, which meant that, you know, you had to extend the credit base. You had to make uh, cheap credit available to these shop owners, workshop owners, so that they would work with bigger international companies. So, of course, that created a new kind of capital accumulation. In other words, the embourgeoisiement of the small shop owners. Some of them, of course, became big capitalists, right? So this is an important, I think, social transformation that will eventually lead to the breakup of Erdogan's social coalition from within. Because you cannot really uh, get rid of all the, you know, class conflict within this political bloc, but... This is why I thought it was important, these small shop owners, although mostly we're talking about the big capitalist class, which was supportive of Erdogan from the get-go. But I think politically, having these sort of middle-class supporters matters the most because they are the link to the working class. They control the working class in workplaces, in the factories, they control the working class in neighborhoods because they are, the working class is their tenants. They control the working class in coffee shops where workers gather together, talk about things. You know, you usually have still 
these uh, property owners who own both the property in the neighborhoods in terms of, you know, homes and also workshops, you know, in, you know where people work. So that's why the relationship between these shop owners, some of which are in a tedious position to begin with, some of them have been workers in the past, then they become sort of small shop owners. So there's still, I think, a lot of permeability and mobility between these two sort of social strata. But this is, I think, politically the most important section. If I can give you some numbers, sort of um, goging the urban vote and the working class vote. Now, in that respect, I think it's a little alarming for Erdogan. Because, for example, when you check big cities like Istanbul, AKP lost almost 6%. Bursa and Kojaili, which are both uh, important industrial hinterlands of Istanbul, 8%. In working class neighborhoods, for example, like Tuzla of Istanbul, AKP's vote was decreased from 51% to 42%. So almost 9 to 10% loss we're talking about here. What happened to that vote? Now, this seems to be going towards the Nationalist Action Party. Now, the Nationalist Action Party, I already mentioned, there was a split within the party. Those who were against Erdogan founded the EE party, the Good Party, and then they joined the Republican People's Party's Millet Coalition. Uh, They seem to have, they seem to be getting like 9% from the National Action Party, and the National Action Party, in return, seems to be getting 10% from AKP. So these are the people who are still voting for Erdogan. Because they think nobody except for Erdogan can pull the economy together, can sort of manage this economy and this politics. However, they also are not happy with substantial policies of uh, this government. So as a protest, they're still voting for MHP. Which is in coalition with Erdogan. They were in alliance. Exactly. So in terms of, I think, the, uh, the voters' strategy, uh, what we're seeing here is basically, uh, this is the working class vote. Uh, it's nationalists. So we are talking about the Sunni Turkish working classes here who are skeptical about uh, the Republican People's Party because a lot of Alevis vote uh, for the Republican People's Party. They're suspicious about Alevis. They're suspicious about secularism. So they're, they're voting for a Sunni party. And also, they don't want to vote for the Kurds, right? So they want to vote for a Turkish party. So this is why I think the Nationalist Action Party, the Nationalist Party, became some sort of a proxy for these voters, showing Erdogan that they're not happy with his policies, but they're going to keep supporting him against this other alternative, which uh, they're not even sure what this alternative is about. That's why I I was talking about if the opposition wanted to get that 10% from Hmm. the Nationalist Action Party, then they had to be, you know, the campaign had to focus much more on economic and social issues than just uh, uh, Erdogan himself. I'm not going to keep you know, talking much about these, you know, working class districts, but we see it in everywhere, in all working class districts and in all urban centers, AKP is losing its electoral votes, which is, I think, a very, very important social dynamic that we have to keep a close eye on because this is something new. We have to remember Islamism, despite all the uh, you know, sociological or political scientific theories out there, it's not a traditional movement. It's a very modern movement. It's a very urban movement. It actually owes its existence to the dynamics of urbanization. You know, we have to remember pretty much like, for example, President Trump, President Erdogan is also coming from, you know, a metropolitan uh, city management, if you will. And from that kind of politics, the urbanization and also the distribution of rent that is connected with that urbanization in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. So if he loses Istanbul, I think it will be a huge dent and irreparable damage in his political project. This is, I think, a very important social dynamic. But 
will that transform into a political dynamic that is up to political engineering? This loss of support for Erdogan and his AKP ruling party can mostly be attributed to the, the ill state of the Turkish economy. The whole Erdogan's clientelism, especially after 2008, but even before that, if you go back to the IMF-sanctioned reforms, quote-unquote, of the late 1990s, early 2000s, basically the reconfiguration of the financial system in Turkey, which was beneficial in a sense to the urban poor because it made credit available for the first time in history to these classes. Before that, credit was not available to these classes. They didn't own property or they didn't have enough property to qualify for credit. Now they had access to credit, which made them eligible for mortgages and loans, which actually made them property owners. The quantitative easing that was implemented in the West following the financial crisis of 2008 actually fed very much into Erdogan's political dynamic. Now, having access to credit, of course, doesn't mean that you're becoming richer, but it means that your sense of welfare is enhanced. And then you have more hopes, more entitlements uh, with regard to the future, and you don't want to lose them. That explains why he's so emphatically against an interest exactly, rate exactly, rise. Exactly, exactly. In fact, exactly. he has been in conflict with the Central Bank of Turkey over that issue. Yes, exactly. But, but despite this kind of conflict between the economic orthodoxy, if you will, and himself, we have to factor in the fact that there is no economic orthodoxy left anymore as well. You know, so in the 80s and 90s, we remember, you know, we used to talk about the Washington consensus. We used to talk about independence of the central banks, the Monday flaming condition and all that. Now, all that talk actually doesn't matter that much anymore. It looks like despite these deepening financial issues, the Turkish government, just on the eve of the elections, they started rolling out a broad-based payout package. It was in an effort to court the favors, I guess, of yes. pensioners, farmers, and minimum wage owners. They're trying to buy votes, essentially, uh-huh. ahead of the elections. I mean, it's not sustainable, of course, because it's all based on construction. And there is enough, I think, savings in the world, especially in the form of pension funds or hedge funds, which are looking for crazy projects like Erdogan's. These big construction projects, you know, bridges, airports or canals and stuff like that. And even if they're not very profitable as projects, Erdogan is giving them treasury guarantees. And you don't really need a rule-based financial system to operate in this kind of environment. You can operate with ad hoc understandings with individual fund managers. You don't need a rule of law. You can just cut individual deals with them. And I think this is actually becoming more the norm rather than the exception. I mean, just look at the way that President Trump deals with trade and finance internationally. And it's not just about President Trump, but also the fact that we still don't have an international or global consensus on trade and finance between Asia, Europe and North America. So in that sense, also, I think it's, uh, you know, if you look at the historical moment that we live in, I think the opposition is very much mistaken by trying to sort of defend a policy uh, that has been an, an orthodox position 15 years ago. But we are past that moment now. We are not going to go back to that moment. This is, I think, as soon as we realize that, we can actually come up with better policies. So what I think of it, yes, there is a boom. There is a construction boom. It's dangerous. There is a financial boom. We know that our state banks give out loans to mortgages, you know, people who want to buy homes with a lower interest rate than the government bonds. So mm. the government as actually right now is trying to get loans and then sort of distribute that as cheap credit to its clientelistic constituencies. That's not sustainable. But on the other hand, I think if you look at international investors, domestic investors, 
everybody seems to be going along with that. Nobody really wants to. At this point, I think everybody's uh, realizing this balloon, this boom, but nobody wants to sort of bust it, if you will. Nobody mm. wants to poke it. <laughs> and unfortunately, as you said, the political opposition has not been able to put up any challenges to these new liberal economic policies. The leftist HDP, they're essentially focusing on more even distribution of wealth. Do they offer anything viable? Actually, they have some idea. I mean, I don't think they're like quite elaborated there as well. The HDP, the party, before the party, there was a uh, Congress, right? It still exists, actually, the People's Democratic Congress, which is not a party. The party was supposed to be a political vehicle expressing the demands of this larger Congress. That Congress actually had quite a few workshops about uh, economics, but this needs to be fleshed out, I think, a little bit more because it's not just economic policies per se. It goes back, as I said, this is very much connected to urbanization policies. So you have these mega cities now, 50 million people or something living in Istanbul, for example. What do you do with that? Is that a sustainable urban environment? If not, what kind of urban policies are needed to sort of even out the population throughout the country, right? So that not all the people are sort of concentrated in this huge urban conglomerate. But the creation of these mega cities was very much encouraged by IMF and World Bank policies of the 80s and the 90s because from the sort of perspective of international capital, they want to have the most sort of dense, consumer and producer population sure. in one location, which is creating unlivable cities, uh, huge income inequalities, and of course, huge urban rent, a huge environmental degradation. Uh, yes. So I think when we talk about these policies, we have to integrate all of this into one policy. So it doesn't really look utopian. It looks actually like a doable policy. If you are going to work with the same parameters that neoliberal policy planners were working with, whatever you're going to propose outside of that specific neoliberal agenda, it might sound good, but it might also sound utopian or hmm. not doable. But maybe we can call it an integral state project or a historic block. So you have to come up with an, with an alternative historic block. So hmm. you cannot just change this and that particular economic policy, but keep the urban policy intact, keep the social policy intact, keep the health policy intact. So we need a integrated, I think, a holistic, if you will, alternative to neoliberalism. Turkey's June 24th elections were held under state of emergency, declared after the failed military coup in July 2016. Since then, Mr. Erdogan's AKP party, AK party, has been running uh, the country using anti-terrorism and defamation laws to imprison large numbers of journalists, activists, and opposition politicians. In fact, more than 130,000 public servants and educators have been purged from their jobs. How big of a factor was this for the voters, this state of emergency, and the purging of people, arrest, detention. Uh, funny thing is even the President Erdogan actually campaigned on a promise of lifting the state of emergency. So the state of emergency is not popular at all because it creates this image of arbitrary rule. It is arbitrary rule, but also it's perceived as arbitrary rule even by AKP supporters. So even AKP supporters want to have some sort of accountability from Erdogan. So that's very important, I think, because the state of emergency affects everybody and everything in a country. So this is important. It's very unpopular. We will see how President Erdogan is going to implement that electoral promise of his of lifting the state of emergency. Probably most of the state of emergency power are now going to be his normal constitutional powers in that sense. But... You know, with the purges, when that many people are purged from the government, that number of people also have been employed by the government. So 
there are some losses that need to be expected in terms of electoral votes following these purges, but then probably as many votes were coming as a result or were consolidating as a result. I should mention this probably in the Kurdish regions, actually, that was one of the concerns because I believe around like 15,000 people, both police and military force, has been transferred to the region, to the Kurdish regions of Turkey for elections. And, and they might have made a difference here and there in terms of, of voters because they can vote in the places that have been placed. So in Kurdish regions, for example, the state of emergency and military and security personnel that's been placed there had some effect on voter turnout there. You talked about lifting of the uh, state of emergency. Uh, once the election results were announced, Mr. Erdogan pledged that authorities would act more decisively against what he called terrorist organization. I mean, yeah. given such remarks, how likely is it that the state of emergency will be lifted? As I said, the state of emergency formally or officially can be lifted, but practically, basically, the new normal could be the the old state of emergency. So you basically, now that he has, now we're going, we're going to, we're turning into another system altogether. So the organization of the states is going to change majorly. So at the end of the day, we will see how things going to work out. But Erdogan might not need the state of emergency anymore because he might already have his powers under the state of emergency, without the state of emergency. In the same speech after his re-election on June 24, Mr. Erdogan said that Turkish forces would continue to what he called liberate Syrian lands, quote-unquote, yes. so that three and a half million Syrian refugees in Turkey could return home safely, as he put it. He has yes. characterized the Turkey's occupation of Afrin in Syria, yes. which happened a few months ago, as a popular victory. Can you remind us what the Turkish military incursion in, into Syria was all about before we can talk about its nexus with this issue of uh, the plight of the Syrian refugees in Turkey. There are people who would argue that this was his plan to basically take the Kurdish population out of these areas and bring in the Syrian refugees and settle them there. That's the plan, yes. I mean, so the plan was first with the operation in Jarablus, then second operation in Afrin. And now there was this talk about the third operation actually in Iraq against the uh, PKK base in the Kandil Mountains in northeast corner of Iraq in the border zone with Iran, which is a mountainous area up until now. Only air operations were possible in this region. Now there's been talk about land operations against the PKK within Iraq. So the Turkish state... President Erdogan is basically trying to beat PKK forces or PKK-related forces outside of Turkey, be it in Syria and in Iraq. So this is part of the counterinsurgency that's going on also within Turkey, in the Kurdish regions. If you want to look at it in one way, it's a spillover of a military conflict within Turkey into neighboring territories. And, and mingled with the uprising in Syria and the conflicts in Syria. Of, of course. course. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. It has so a different dynamics it, now. Yeah. Yeah. This is, whether Erdogan has any goals in Syria besides beating uh, the Kurdish militants there or, you know, defeating them there is another topic in and of itself. I think they invested a lot in the Syria conflict to the extent that they really trying to harvest some kind of benefit from that involvement. And of course, in order to do that, you need to control territory. So if you want to be part to the diplomatic solution with regard to Syria, Turkish soldiers have to be inside Syria. So Erdogan knows that, the Turkish state knows that, so they're, act, I think, acting accordingly. So in other words, if you want to be part of Geneva 3, 4, or whatnot, whatever is going to emerge as a diplomatic solution to this crisis, if you want to be part of it, if you want to be at the negotiation table, 
you have to have armed people on the ground. So that is very important, I think. This is not only an Erdogan project. I think this is a state project. I mean, more is involved than just the Erdogan party. And this is, I think, why Erdogan leadership seems to be so robust and consolidated is because it is actually getting support from the state structure. I mean, at least a majority of the state fractions are supporting Erdogan as well. In this regard, because they see it as a nationalist cause, also in terms of the voters' alignments, if you uh, let's, you know, we would talk about this 10%, especially the working class, which are quite unhappy with the state of emergency or the economy or this kind of dictatorial tendencies of Erdogan, maybe. But at the end of the day, they still are thinking, well, this is a nationalist cause what's happening in Syria and in Iraq, so we have to stick together. So both, I think, politically and ideologically, the war in Syria and Iraq, both in Syria and Iraq, are very, very important. So Turkish regime consolidation, if you will, to some extent, is also dependent on what's going to happen in Syria and Iraq. I mean, it goes both ways. In other words, since the Turkish state, the Turkish regime is putting a lot of chips on the gamble in Syria and Iraq, it also is going to be affected by what is happening in Syria and Iraq. And some of that might be actually beyond their control. The elections that took place on June 24th were supposed to be um, in November 2019. But Mr. Erdogan called the snap elections back in April, which gave the opposition only three months to organize. What explains this decision? I think the 10% that I just mentioned, the 10%, the working class that seems to be sliding away from AKP, if not from Erdogan, into his coalition partner, the Nationalist Action Party, explains this dynamic a little bit. I think the economic crisis is imminent and the management of the clientelistic networks for electoral purposes could not have been possible maybe in 2019 or even like a few months later. I think that explains why he wanted to have snap elections because I think, you know, in terms of economics, his hands are getting tighter and tighter. So his his possibilities for clientelistic, I mean, feeding you know, these clientelistic networks is going to become increasingly difficult. And I think this is still going to be difficult for him, but at least he's past the threshold now, so we'll see how he will manage that. Sinan, aside from the fact that these new elections were held under the state of emergency, and there were snap elections, gave their opposition only three months to campaign and build a base of support, in addition to all these factors, the media is now totally under control of AKP or its supporters. In fact, there have been recent developments that are even more troubling. The Duan Media Group, Turkey's last nationally independent media group, was bought by a pro-government entity a couple of months ago. And just media group is the one that owns the newspapers such as Huria and Posta. Yes. And also two of the country's main entertainment channels, Kanal D and CNN Turk. Can you talk about this government's control over the media and how that control changes the political landscape and how does it play out in the elections? Of course, if you look at how much airtime the cans are getting, it's really, I mean, the difference is huge between Erdogan and other candidates. Propaganda studies emphasize again and again that all propaganda has to be total. So you have to make sure that your followers do not get alternative interpretations of events. They do not get facts. They only hear your story. This is one of the first rules of propaganda because you don't want to give your followers any moment where they could actually think by themselves. So you don't want them to have their own opinions. You don't want them to have any kind of individuality in their thinking. So in that sense, I think it's predictable what Erdogan has done with 
the rest of the media. So that explains, I think, his motive is pretty classic case. Look it up in any kind of book on propaganda, makes the same point. But how was this possible is another question. And in that sense, for example, the Doan Corporation, which Erdogan's proxies took over now, they already lost their independence, I think, when they started becoming a corporate media institution to begin with. For example, I can tell this about this newspaper, Hurriyet. It was founded by the Simavi family, which was a journalist family. So they were capitalists. They were the owners of newspaper. But, you know, as a family, they were actually coming from journalism and they were involved in journalism as opposed to a when we talk about a corporate conglomerate. And this is the pattern that emerged in the 90s, actually. Then we're talking about corporate interests, which also owns media. And in the 90s, uh, they used to uh, trade uh, media support for economic benefits, political support for economic benefits. So this very mechanism of form of clientelism, if you will, in mass media started also with the Doan Corporation. So we're coming sort of to the end of this process, maybe, where the staunch uh, supporters of corporate media and the purging of trade unions from mass media, they fell victim to their own game. It is, of course, a big landmark in terms of Erdogan's regime consolidation. Any kind of monopolization of mass media has to be regarded as a significant event. But on the other hand, the Doğan Corporation itself was a creation of the sort of corporate takeover of mass media by capital. And now, since Erdogan is controlling the flow of capital, is controlling what we would call primitive capital accumulation, they got the upper hand. You mentioned this trend. The AKP and MHP, their allies, the vote shares combined in November 1st, 2015 elections was something around 62%. And when you look at the June 24 elections, their total share was around 52%. As you mentioned, there's clearly a trend. There is a decline in support for AKP, Justice and Development Party. But that's just at the ballot box. Looking into the future, where do you think the resistance to Mr. Erdogan and his new powers will come from? This is really hard to predict, obviously. But I think politically, I would say there are two forces. Now, we have this opposition that's been sort of crystallizing, as I said, in its opposition to Mr. Erdogan as a person to his personal rule. That's already there. There is also, I think, a potential opposition within Erdogan's bloc. And I think his strategy has to be based on separating the opposition from the inside, from the opposition, from the outside. The only way to connect these two, the opposition from the inside, as I said, sociologically speaking, the weak link in, the, in Mr. Erdogan's coalition is the contradiction between capital and labor. So the only way to break up his coalition is basically to pit the capitalists against the laborers. That's the only way of uh, undoing his political coalition. Whether the existing opposition, which is mostly focusing on his personal quest for power can do that is another question. Apparently, that's not coming from the political leadership right now. In other words, whether or not President Erdogan's regime can be challenged by any kind of social movement depends on the availability of political leadership. If there is political leadership that can connect political demands of getting rid of the emergency order a freer political system and so on and so forth, a non-authoritarian turn, if you will, those political demands need to be connected to social and economic demands. (laughs) 
Sinan Burdal is a visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. seen the images of boats carrying hundreds of refugees. Many die before they reach the European coast or a rescue ship. Recently, the far-right government in Italy shut down its ports to thousands of refugees who crossed the Mediterranean to reach its shores. In his award-winning documentary film, Fire at Sea, Franco Rossi sheds light on the plight of migrants as they attempt to reach the Italian island of Lampedusa. While filming, he spent more than a month aboard an Italian Navy ship that rescues migrants. He says, for me, it was important to show that, you know, these are people, they're not just numbers. His camera travels with members of the Italian Coast Guard as they perform acts of rescue and triage, explores the shelters and processing centers where refugees are housed and spends time with some of Lampedusa's residents, in particular Dr. Pietro Bartolo, who treats the refugees, and a boy, Samuele. When I start a film, I don't want to have any written things, you know, besides a a feeling that I have to have, which is a central core of an emotion of something very particular. I start a, a journey, which is uh, I never know really where this is leading me. So it's always a very slow process of finding the story, finding the character, first encountering the place itself, so the island, and within this space I have to find the reason of why I'm making this film, and then within this I have to find the character. And it will become my guide within this search. It usually is a very long process, and for me it's important to spend a long time at the beginning without even filming. And I never really write down the structure of the film when I start, but I start encountering the situation. I, the only thing that I had very clear from the beginning, it was that I wanted to tell the story through the point of view of the kids, and I want to tell the story of the migrant to the point of view of the people of the island. So somehow was a need of switching this position, because Lampedusa was always told as a place related to the migrant, and the story were always focused into tragedies, to events, to always some sorrow. Somehow the island was always put aside. 
it never came out that there are people living there and there is uh, an identity on this place. So I wanted to somehow switch the point of view. And from the beginning, I was looking for a kid because a kid would give me a freedom, somehow a, a way to create a parable, like almost in Iranian film when they were not allowed to make political film. They always choose a kid, right? Because the kid allows a big space of wonder. And when I met Samuele, I felt immediately he was a special kid. And he was the person I started filming first, before even filming the migrant, before filming the other people in the island. So slowly, slowly, he became an emotional guide in the film. I discovered that his world was not only an exterior world of what a kid make every day, but it was a very strong interior element, a link with something else that was bringing me suspension beyond Lampedusa. So the tragedy that we don't see the interior mood of Samuele was becoming like a language of understanding, like a coming of age, a struggle of a kid to face life. And I felt like so much correlation between his inner world and the world of the migrant arriving in Lampedusa and passing through this island. Did you know how you wanted to bring these two worlds together? When I was in the island, the first things I discovered, the first three months through four months I was in the island, there were no migrants whatsoever because the, the hotspot center mm-hmm. was closed because there was a fire. So paradoxically, the first months of my staying there, there were no migrants arriving in Lampedusa. This because the same year I was there, it was uh, institutionalized, this operation Mare Nostrum, which somehow the border of Lampedusa was brought into the sea and they were constantly patrolling of Navy and Coast Guard. So the people before, they used to ride directly in Lampedusa and somehow having more interaction with the island. There is a separation. So Lampedusa became a microcosm, like Mm -hmm. the rest of the world. From the Lampedusa people, this phenomenon, this tragedy of the migrant is like intercepted through television, through radio, through voices, but never really lived and experienced. Some people ask me why Samuel never interact with any migrant, because he doesn't. It's very simple. So the film reflects exactly what's going on right now in Lampedusa. And I wanted to accentuate this in the film, that there were these two worlds that they never meet. So there's the island, there's the migrant, and in my film there is a third element, which is this hypothetical boat. So there are three elements in the film. The island, the people of the island, the arrival of migrants, and one boat that goes for an apothetical rescue, and then we encounter death. So these were the three narrative mm-hmm. elements that I based the film on. After I filmed that, I had to stop filming, because emotionally something broke inside of me. I was not able anymore to take the camera and film. So at that moment, I decided to start editing the film. And I knew I'd only have this story, so I didn't know if this was going to work. So I called my editor and asked him to come to Lampedusa and start editing there. And I told him I want to show this tragedy in the film. So the whole film was built like a narrative arch in order to arrive to death. And this death has to embody all the 25,000 people that they die in this journey of desperation. That's what the film wants to be, a cry for help. It's unacceptable that in Europe in this moment people die escaping from tragedies, from war, from hunger, from desperation, and finding death in the middle of the sea. This is what the film at the end wants to say. But everything is through the eyes of these little kids. There is a scene that he is sitting on a rock and the ship that rescues these migrants, these refugees, is at a distance and he can see it, but he's not aware of the mission of that ship. And that's an incredible moment that only documentary can bring into life. He's trying to learn how to row. In Lampedusa, we are all sailors, and there's no way you cannot not row. And he hates the sea, so there's all this element of contradiction of his life. At a certain point, there was a strong current, and I remember him just with his boat. He was not able anymore to, yeah. to handle the boat. And, and sadly, accidentally, goes, uh, he saved himself on the boat that is um, made for the rescue of the, of the migrant in the middle of the sea. So this was a, another strong moment of the film that happened completely by accident. During the film, he introduces us to Dr. Bartolo, who has dedicated his life addressing the plight of the migrants and refugees. He has the difficult task of treating the migrants who arrive at Lampedusa's shores in dire conditions. Many are near death, others are already there. He says, I've done, I don't know, seven or 800 autopsies on people who haven't survived the trip they see, which should represent life, instead has become an emblem of death. 
So it's almost like he's talking loudly to himself. I never ask him any question. My teacher used to say, ask 10 questions, you have 10 answers. Not interesting, you have to be able to grab every moment of life. At the beginning of the film, he gave me this USB pen with all the material that he photographed throughout the 20 years that he was witnessing arrival in the island. And he was the one that convinced me to make his film. At the beginning, I was very scared. I didn't know how to tell this story. He gave me this pen, and when I went back to Rome, I started looking at this material and immediately understood that it was a tragedy that I had to show. Dr. Bartolo is a special soul and he's the voice of awareness in the film. As much as Samuel is a voice of the subconscious and the voice of an instinct, Dr. Bartolo is the voice of the conscience, is the one that somehow takes us by the hand. The most difficult moment for Rossi came when he had to film scenes of death and helplessness on a rescue boat. I didn't know how I was going to film death. Death came to me. Before, I, I saw death so many times in Lampedusa. I saw them in this plastic bag. I saw the doctor visit them, declaring the death of these bodies. And I never wanted to film that. That day, I was in a regular operation that was almost uh, nothing special. And then suddenly, out of this boat, I see people agonizing. And I had a few seconds to decide, should I film this or not? And I decided that I had to witness this and the world had to know this tragedy. I didn't look for that. It came to me. This is a tragedy. It's almost like one of the biggest tragedies Europe is living after the Holocaust. These people die like in a chamber gas. We are witnessing a tragedy in this moment. We are living a tragedy in this moment. And I think it's a duty to show to the people what's going on right now. We cannot turn our head and say we didn't know. And that was what I want the film to bring up, an awareness on that. These people die every day. 25,000 people die in the last 10 years, 15 years, try to reach freedom. And this is unacceptable. I asked Gina Franco Rossi if he had any ethical concerns regarding filming refugees in their weakest physical and emotional state. By a certain moment, I felt also the duty to force myself to film certain moments where it was very uncomfortable to bring the camera between me and the reality I was filming. But having this camera stealing a private moment, but that private moment was sure that I was going to use it in a way that was telling so much and was necessary. Ethically, I was very torn, you know, but uh, I wanted to show the discomfort of someone that arrived in a place and being searched, the smell of the gasoline in their clothes. When the policemen say, if I switch on that, we blow up. You have to know that you're going to use this material with respect and mm-hmm. telling still a story. You know, there's a moment on the phone calls and the dialogue is so beautiful when they call home. And I translate the whole dialogue of the phone calls, but I didn't want to put the subtitle mm. because it was so intimate at the mm. moment. The women desperate in the boat, I was able to talk to them a lot. I was the one that told them that their husband or their brother or their man, they didn't make it, that were dead. And I asked if I could film them there, and they said, of course. I was in the boat that rescued them in the middle of the sea. So I was able to spend with them three, four days together. And then when they invite me into the room for the prayer, they say, we want to thank you also because you were part of the rescue. And when they asked me to go to the room, I said, can I film this moment of prayer that you're doing? And they say, of course you can. And that's, I think, is one of the highest moments of the film. And no one could express in such a strong way, this is worth thousands of interviews. People are victims of enormous atrocity there. These people are put into the sea knowing that they're facing death, and 25,000 people die. It's a huge human slaughter that we're all responsible. You're responsible, and in this moment, is not able to act politically on this. The world should act politically. Zero, 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 you know, but we have to be able to open up and not, uh, you know, when these people are rescued in the middle of the sea and brought to Italy, then they're left on their own. They're desperate people who are wandering in Italy without anybody taking care of them, giving them the chance of re rehab a life there. So we betrayed their own hope. You know, they're arriving there hoping to find freedom, hoping to find a job, hoping to find a new life, and we abandon these things. And that's when we create a, a social conflict, which is very dangerous. I asked Rossi about the message of his documentary and what he wants people to take away from it. You know, you know now we spoke so much about politics. My film is not a political film. Uh, my film, uh, it's a film, it's a story of a kid, it's a story of an island, it's a story of a tragedy. 
But somehow politics is pumping so much outside the frame of my film that uh, since Berlin this became the most political film ever on immigration and became the film on migration where everybody, the film was shown in uh, the United Nations, was shown in many places, was shown the Pope, everybody's watching this film. Sometimes I feel to be, to clean the conscience, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm scared of. But also in Lampedusa, for example, when they saw the film, you know, people, they were not aware of the tragedy happening. So Lampedusa is somehow the same kind of uh, uh, blindness that other place um, uh, in Europe has. You know, Zia Maria, she's uh, grasping from the news the fact there were 250,000, 250 people died outside. So it lacks the contact again. You know, Samuele never has contact with the migrants. So again, we are creating separation. We are creating two worlds that they never somehow interact. So that's what I mean. The film, has, for me, is a cry for, of help. It shows this uh, separation. And um, you know, I showed the film in 64 countries now, and uh, it's been uh, released in theatrical in 64 countries. And I've been to so many screenings around because the film needs to be supported also with the Q&A because there's so much to talk, as you can see from now. The film talks, but also you can expand the conversation. That's what the film does. And um, for me, when I see someone coming out of a screening and hug me and uh, with his eyes very moved and say, a few days ago, this journalist told me the first reaction was I want to bang my head against the wall. A second, I asked myself, what can I do? So if 10, 20, 30 people comes out from the screening asking themselves, what can I do? I think this was a film that was worth doing it. <laughs> Gianfranco Rossi is an award-winning cinematographer, producer, and screenwriter. His 2016 film, Fire at Sea, a documentary focused on the plight of migrants and refugees on the Sicilian island of Lampedusa, won the Golden Bear at the 66th Berlin International Film Festival. You can watch Fire at Sea on Netflix. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you.